Well, hey, 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 it is 11 a.m., and this room is now live and open. I see I have one listener, Charlie. Charlie, can you hear me? And if so, could you hear me before? I was wearing a headset, and I still don't know if uh, that was working or not, so I pulled the headset off. I'm Tom Knapp, a.k.a. Napster. I'm sitting in my front yard in sunny, beautiful north-central Florida, and this is the soft launch first episode of Napster, Ask Me Anything. Uh, for years, I've done a thread on my blog at Napster, that's K-N-A-P-P-S-T-E-R dot blogspot dot com, called Thanks for Asking. I do it once a month. I take questions and I answer them. Now, I have some questions queued up from the blog, but if anybody shows up and would like to ask a question live, all you have to do is let me know in the chat. Thanks for confirming that you can hear me, Charlie. Let's get started with the questions I'm answering now. I'm going to go from the meatiest practical topic to the meatiest philosophical topic in order, which happens to be reverse order of the question, order in which they were asked. Paul Stanton asks me, why is St. Louis-style pizza bad? And Paul obviously dislikes St. Louis-style pizza, and I will say right now, as I take a sip of my bourbon and diet Dr. Pepper, that that's blasphemy and I won't be having any of it. St. Louis-style pizza is an acquired taste, and I know that Paul moved to Missouri from Florida a few years ago, so apparently he's run into it. Here's the thing about St. Louis-style pizza. I believe it's an acquired taste, and it takes a while to acquire. I first had it in Springfield, Missouri, when an Emo's Pizza opened up. There are two major, actually one major chain and one smaller chain. Cecil Whitaker's was probably the original St. Louis-style pizza chain, and there are still a few of them around St. Louis. Emo's, there are more of them in St. Louis, and they franchised out. In the 90s, the local Libertarian Party met at the Emo's in Springfield. So I went, and of course, if you're going to go to a pizza place for a meeting, you order a pizza. And I thought it was the nastiest stuff I had ever tasted. And every time I went to a meeting, I swore I'll order something else besides the pizza next time. I'll just order a pitcher of beer. But after three or four times, I discovered that I liked St. Louis style pizza. And now the last time my family traveled to St. Louis without me, I asked them to bring me an Emo's back and they did. St. Louis-style pizza has an ultra-thin crust. I've heard it compared to a matzo. If you're Jewish or familiar with Jewish food, you know what a matzo is. It's a very, very thin, crisp cracker. Then it has your normal sauce and toppings, but the cheese is something called Provel, which at least until recently was not legally considered cheese because of the uh, moisture content was too high or too low for FDA standards or USD standards, or USDA standards, or whatever, and it has kind of a tang to it. That's the cheese that is used on St. Louis-style pizza, and like I said, it's an acquired taste. Um, Paul also asked who came up with the dumb idea of using Provel on pizza. Uh, presumably Cecil Whitaker would be my guess. As for the reason, it's probably pretty cheap. The last time I looked at statistics, 70% of Provel is used in St. Louis-style pizza. And I think the other 30% is probably used as like an additive to give a cheesy flavor to various foods. Anyway, St. Louis-style pizza. If you're in or around St. Louis, go to Emo's, go to Cecil Whitaker's, 
order a pizza, order whatever toppings you normally like on pizza, give it a try. You're probably going to hate it. Now, do that three more times. And then for the rest of your life, every so often, nothing will satisfy you except a St. Louis-style pizza. So thanks for asking, Paul. I, I love to be able to preach about St. Louis-style pizza. The next question from the blog comes from uh, Joel Schlossberg. He says, you recently blogged about how being well-known inside a very specific niche can make one feel famous. If you could pick one very specific niche for Tom Knapp to be an influential name in besides those in which it is already, what would it be? That's easy. Thanks for asking, Joel. Hands down, music. If I could be well-known as anything I liked, it would be as a guitar god. I'd like for them to remake It Might Get Loud to have me hobnobbing with Jimmy Page, The Edge, and Jack White about our killer guitar licks. And I'd like to have my name mentioned in the same sentence as Bob Dylan's or Woody Guthrie's or Son House's in terms other than, wow, that Tom Knapp really likes Bob Dylan, Woody Guthrie, and Son House. Now, I know that's not going to happen. I'm not a great musician by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not going to be. I'm 55 years old. I'm getting arthritis, and I was never that good in the first place. It's not going to happen. It's a Walter Mitty type daydream, but what's wrong with Walter Mitty type daydreaming? You know, it's, uh, if I could be a rock god, that would be what I would like to be well known as. Now, the third and final question from the blog is from my old friend Jake Porter, who is managing Ricky Dale Harrington's campaign for governor down in Arkansas right now. And Jake asks, where did the idea of states' rights and constitutionalism get confused with libertarianism? What could we have done to stop it? And how do we stop it going forward? Thanks for asking, Jake. You know, I've, I've written a lot on this. Um, I think the bottom line is that any political idea or philosophy fits itself into various containers to try to make itself popular. Uh, if you look at early libertarianism, the big trends in politics at the time were your monarchism or imperialism on one side and socialism or on the other. And you really didn't have a place for libertarianism as a major philosophy. So it tended to get associated with the socialist movement. And it was the same way in the U.S. in the 19th century. If you look at Benjamin Tucker, Henry George, they were looking at what's called the social question. Um, they were in line with the socialists on certain aspects of things. But in the 20th century, a right-wing libertarianism emerged uh, during and after the New Deal era. And they tended to identify themselves with, you know, quote, lost, unquote, constitutional principles. The constitutional idea of federalism, uh, the still popular lost cause mythology of the Civil War, and a sort of contextless fetish for, quote, decentralization, unquote, in the libertarian movement made that movement a plausible container for states' rights doctrine to fit into. And that, in turn, made the movement itself somewhat attractive to people who were more interested in all those other things, in addition to and maybe aside from liberty as such. Now, this isn't a new problem in the movement or most especially in the Libertarian Party. When I attended my first Libertarian National Convention in Anaheim in 2000, Willis Cardo's Liberty Lobby, they were a cranky right-wing anti-Semitic outfit um, with whom uh, I believe Mel Gibson's family was affiliated. Uh, they had a vendor booth at the Libertarian National Convention. 
In 2008, the party nominated Bob Barr for president, and he more or less ran as an old-style Dixiecrat. So there's nothing new here in the movement or especially in the party, and we need to understand that what's going on in the party right now is the continuation of a rebellion against libertarianism and in favor of old rightism. How do we beat that going forward? I have no idea. I mean, we can focus on actual, you know, small L libertarian causes and candidates. On the big L libertarian party side, we can try to find the ones that aren't rolling around in that litter box. Uh, But it's been a continuing problem for a century now, and it's going to continue being a problem. Okay, those are the questions that were asked on the blog prior to uh, me going live. I see I have a couple of listeners here. Um, if you would like to go live let me and talk with me live, let me know in chat. Um, looking through the call-in site documents, it looks like you might actually have to follow me on call-in for me to even allow you to talk. But I'm about to press a button and ask some and see if it'll let me add somebody talking. I just invited Joel to speak. So let's see if he does. Joel, are you there? Joel, going once. Are you there, Joel? I see you as a speaker now, Joel, but I do not hear you talking. And it looks like you may have yourself muted. Okay, I think I... uh... There you uh, are. There was a button that looked like uh, it's all icons, isn't yeah? Instead of like text, what it says. So, oh yeah, I was listening on the on the website. You can listen, but you can't call. I was switching right. over to the app. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to uh, drop the drop the call or like somehow mess it up. So yeah. All right, how you doing? Doing pretty good. How are you? Okay. Thanks for your most recent Garrison Center column. Everybody, go check out Joel's column. At the garrisoncenter.org. Yeah. Have you heard from Paul Stanton? Haven't uh, heard from him whether what, what he thinks of it. But, yeah, it was, I, was have not, I have not heard from Paul what he thinks of the column. Um, yeah. As you heard, he asked a couple of questions on a uh, or one question on the blog for this episode. So he seems to be paying attention, but I have not heard from him about this column. I hope he liked it. He yeah. um, for anybody else who's listening, Paul. Um, approached us and then talked to Joel about doing a column on abortion rights. And so that happened. Yeah. <coughs> this is kind of a new thing that like someone actually like coming to us and uh, for something. It's like you pay your dues for so long, just kind of uh, hope, hoping that people will notice. And then when they do, it's all, it's all a surprise. Well, I've had it happen once or twice in the last time. When did uh, the Garrison Center start? 2015? Uh, so. Early That's on, one, one of our supporters asked me to write a specific column and made a donation, and the column worked with what I was doing, so I did that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I uh, would like to push a lot of our readers more toward Joel, who runs his own personal fundraising apparatus, uh, so that uh, maybe he can be paid to write additional columns beyond the one a month he writes for us. Yeah. It's like one of the things, if you don't get anyone, you don't think you'll get anyone. Yeah, It's like you don't want to bother trying to ask, ask for stuff if you're not going to get it. Well, so, I want to I want to brag on Paul Stanton here. He's the best $5 I ever invested. Um, he ran for Senate from Florida in 2018 on the Libertarian ticket. 
Um, he joined the primary because we had a sun god worshiping weird racist guy, uh, Augustus Invictus, running for our nomination. So Paul threw his hat in the ring to save the party from that embarrassment. And I happened to be his first campaign contributor. I handed him a $5 bill. Um, and a couple of months later, he came and handed it back to me and said that, uh, you know, he had to have it, you know, check or credit card or whatever for the cam the, his campaign treasurer. But I was his first campaign contributor, and he's financially and morally supported everything I've done ever since. So, you know, I paid $5 and got it back and, and, and then got all this friendship and help from Paul. He's a really good guy, and he cares a lot about uh, a lot of important issues. So I'm glad to see uh, him working with you to get one of the issues he cares about written about. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get some newspapers picking up your column. That usually happens. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that like uh, USA Today did the, the the one before that, which they definitely didn't expect. Well, I love it when USA Today takes our stuff because if it appears in any USA Today paper, it appears on all of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, the same thing with the Orange County Register. I think they have twelve or thirteen papers, and if if the Register picks up a piece, it goes on all their websites and in some of their print editions. Um. But this is a thanks for asking podcast, Joel. Do you have a question? All right, let me let me think. Yeah, there were there 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 are a couple. I was yeah that last one I was trying to like figure out, and at some point I have to go and like look at all the ones I've asked to just uh, make sure I haven't uh, uh, asked one before. Uh, oh, well, this is a new show, so if you ask an old question, it, it's still the first yeah. episode, man. Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, Actually, what I was thinking of asking, and this is kind of out of the blue, is uh, I remember in your uh, your uh, writing the libertarian op-ed, you said that you have to go through the usual process of like writing to format unless you're the Unabomber when he got the, the manifesto published. Yeah. So I was actually, I've been like wondering like how to phrase this for like, uh, you know, like a while now of, of did you think that that manifesto being published had an impact on like the causes of uh, Kaczynski that, that he intended it to like, what was the effect of having this lengthy thing published when like no one did that. And, you know, before the internet made it so anyone could publish, you know, whatever they want where, and especially like in, I, I think it's been known about, but I only heard about it recently that there's been other, manifestos of of uh of people uh people have killed people where like you know they they kill a bunch of people and they do the manifesto where it turns out a lot of these later manifestos have had passages that are literally cut and pasted from the unabomber's one but where they they like they they just change who the target is where like he's talking about leftists and they'll change it to like cultural marxists or islamists or whatever the enemy the jour is and if it's that interchangeable that doesn't mean that you know that that is devoid of whatever content it has and i was actually well, thinking about that yeah like you know because it's come up more recently so well you're talking about the effect so thanks for asking i'm gonna try yeah. to remember to say that every time yeah um Not condoning his actions you know needless to say when it was first published and when it first came out that this was you know this was the axe that this guy was grinding you know, it actually tied into some existing causes. The one I'm thinking of are the Luddites, the Earth Firsters. Yeah. Um, 
I suspect most of them were embarrassed to have a guy mailing bombs and then, you know, writing stuff they agreed with. So maybe they didn't promote it too much. But, you know, you look at the long term effects of anything. Um, I have a 21 year old son. And a couple of years ago, he just looks over at me and says the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for humanity which, if I'm not mistaken, is the first line of Ted Kaczynski's manifesto. Um, it's become a meme. I see, I see and hear people quoting it anytime yeah. something bad happens in tech. Yeah. So, you know, Kaczynski lives in that sense. Uh, you know, I don't know how many people have actually read his entire manifesto. It's been decades since I did. Um, and I thought the guy was Looney Tunes even though at the time I would have been what you would have called an earth firster. But, but he's having a long-term effect. He's being quoted. Um, He is a name. He is history now. And apparently in a way that some people find engaging and who knows if there won't be some revolution somewhere 30 years from now with people carrying portraits of Kaczynski as they march through the streets to take down a government or something. You just never know how that, that stuff can go. Yeah. I mean, it happens that people don't realize like that, like, like, uh, or like, uh, Peter Lambert Wilson, who recently passed away, the, uh, the temporary autonomous zone, you know, phrase, you know, or like other autonomous zones, like people have heard that phrase who have no idea about the original also, context. Also known as Hakim Bey. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, he got a bad name because he apparently was an active, uh, I don't know if he was a pedophile himself, but an actor of yeah. uh, promoter yeah. of uh, sex with children as yeah. a cause. The um, point really, he uh, actually North, wrote for NAMBLA. Like yeah, North American the... Man Boy Love Association, for those who haven't heard of it, it's a, yeah. Yeah. an old organization that wanted to normalize um, adult males having sexual relations with young boys. Um, so for obvious reasons, that got him in bad with a lot of people to the extent that, you know, they might not pay attention to the stuff he did that was worthwhile. Yeah. Then uh, a lot of people, like a lot of people read, read the temporary autonomous zone or other writings about that, who had just no idea about the other stuff. Right. Uh, um, I didn't know about it until I was reading up on him because I'm, I've got a reading list and I'm like, I'm putting pirate utopias and temporary. I've, I've read TAZ before, uh, you know, but I was putting them on my reading list because um, at the moment, I'm fascinated with the pirate party, since I'm somewhat politically homeless vis-a-vis the Libertarian Party right now. And I'm like, well, if we're going to talk about pirates, we, you know, we got to talk about pirate utopias and uh, uh, autonomous zones and panarchy yeah. and stuff like that. That that doesn't really fit the pirate party's platform, but uh, um, that's yeah. just the way my mind works. I get interested in something, and it sends me off in a new direction. I mean, I mean, there's this whole other like layer of controversy of like whether you know how accurate the the, the history is of of the pirate uh, the movement of piracy, where like there's there's entire accounts that could be completely true or completely made up that just no one knows. Like there's definitely like you know there's definitely true that pirates were kind of this stateless society, you know, since they were they were they did did stuff that was illegal on, in international waters, but a lot of the specifics is extremely murky, but. Uh, Hey, I see that we have a listener here um, called Paul. So it might be Paul Stanton. I've invited him to speak. It shows him as muted, but if he uh, unmutes, then uh, he can talk with both of us. 
Oh, it looks like Paul. Yeah. Hey, Paul. Oh, hi, Paul. Hey, Tom. Hey, Joel. How you doing? Hey, how's it going, Paul? Pretty good. It's been a Pretty while. Figure I don't out. know if you were, like know if you were listening earlier, uh, but we were wondering what you thought about Joel's op-ed. Oh, that's yeah. macaroni and cheese, by the way. Um, and yeah. uh, I so the the, the op-ed, uh, you know, wasn't what I would have written or what I was um, even hoping for. Um, it, I think it's better, though, um, for a few reasons. So um, right now with the, um, you know, the so-called value them both amendment here in Kansas, there's. A- well, Are you there, Paul? Yeah, he could cut it off for me, too. Well, I'm glad to hear that Paul liked it for a minute there. It sounded like he might not. And then yeah, he took a turn. Um, Paul, for yeah. uh, we can't hear you. You don't show as muted on my oh. screen. I think I heard something. He may be having headset problems or computer problems or phone problems. It happens. You're you're coming in and out, Paul, both audibly yeah. and on my screen. There's a little blue thing that comes around when somebody's speaking, and it'll like pop up for a second, and I'll hear half a syllable, and then it goes away. So okay. I don't know if you're on a cell phone and having bad reception. Okay. Is it better now or the same? <laughs> well, now I can hear. Yeah, yeah fine. Perfect. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't what I was expecting, but I, I think it's better um, because there's a lot of a, mm-hmm. a lot of um, opinion and a lot of like propaganda. It's very one sided going around. And the the whole value them both amendment um, in well, in everything is very sad. Um, if you've read the actual amendment text, it's very confusing um, and intentional. So, so um, to have a very clear statement of this is what it is and this is what it does and, and, and to kind of like weed through that I think is very important. Um, so I, I, I do very much appreciate uh, the op-ed that you wrote, Joel. So thank you for that. Um, All right. Yeah, but, thank you for letting me write it. Uh, were, were you in but, when you, I answered your previous questions, Paul? Um, I, I noticed that you did not um, answer my actual question. Um, but, uh, thank you anyway. Well, ask it again. I I asked you what, uh, I asked you specifically what mind altering illness do you think the person who created, um, the St. Louis style pizza, um, had, I believe. I would suggest that it was probably a psychedelic induced schizophrenia that that had a beautiful result. I, th- I think I think maybe Cecil Whitaker got a hold of, of the wrong kind of mushrooms one day and said, "What can I do with pizza that's weird and strange?" No, St. Louis pizza isn't the worst. Um, I've only had it uh, once or twice in my life, and it was—I don't know—I I just thought it was okay. Um, I didn't really love it or hate it, but well, I, I people do, who hate it tend to really hate it. Yeah, is it like pineapple on pizza? Where it's not only people uh, don't like it, but they make this big show of of not liking it? Well, it's not so much about not liking it, Joel. It's that if you put pineapple on it, it's not pizza anymore. By definition? Is that like putting processed cheese on it, Tom? What's that? Is that like putting processed cheese on it? Putting processed cheese on it makes it St. Louis style, which makes it wonderful. What if you put both? Oh, how many uh, toppings can dance on the head of a pie crust? Yeah. 
It's uh, it's one of those eternal mysteries, but I have sworn eternal enmity to uh, the enemies of liberty and to pineapple on pizza on the altar yeah. of God. Yeah. And actually, you know who we, who's who's also who's on your side? Then is Bill De Blasio. Like I think one of the like the last like things he did was like when he was explaining ranked choice voting, he had like four different uh, like possibilities, and he's like, you can just put this one last if you don't like it, and he used pineapple on pizza. Remember, Chris Cabarro blogged blogged about it. It's like he said that was like the first time he ever agreed with De Blasio. Like in his entire uh, uh, mayoral uh, history. Yeah, pretty much. God, we're talking about pizza, and that's making me want to get back up to New York. Yeah. Not I can get really. fairly decent uh, New York style pizza down here, but it's not the best. There was one place that was really good and closed. Yeah. Uh, the only time I was in New York, my friend uh, Chris Matthew Ciabarra took me to yeah. a pizza place in Brooklyn. I can't yeah. remember the name of it, but they had traditional New York style and they had Sicilian style, and it was just yeah. marvelous. Yeah, yeah, he was the one who blogged about the Blasio and pizza. I think I remember that now that you mention it. Um, I follow yeah. Chris's blog. Yeah. So, Paul, That's... I heard you use a word that makes me wonder something. You said here in Kansas, have you moved over from St. Joseph into Kansas itself? Yes, yes, I live in Kansas now. It's a wonderful place, um, home of the Jayhawkers. So, uh, yeah. Well, I made it over to Kansas some when I was in Missouri. Made it over to Lawrence, and uh, I was married to a woman from Hutchinson for a few years, but I don't want to talk about that. Fair enough. Um, Yeah, I like Kansas. It's flatter than I like, but then so is Florida. Florida's Florida's much flatter than Kansas is. Um, Florida's the flat date um, by far. Well, if you're in eastern Kansas, you still have some hills. Yeah, there's there's some hills um, in eastern Kansas, and uh, it's really not as flat as as you might think. Um, but yeah, it's, it's well, I'm thinking flat of like Russell, Kansas. Russell, Kansas, home of Bob okay. Dole. I'm pretty sure you can see Los Angeles from there. That's how flat it is. <laughs> it, the Rocky Mountains might disagree. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, but I've driven across Kansas enough times to dislike the flatness of it. I'll put it that way. Um, driving from like Denver to Missouri or the other way. And, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, you can only watch wheat fields for so long before you're like, what the fuck? You know, I really, I really do Kansas, though. Um, it has a lot of, it has, like, kind of almost a, a southernist charm without the pause type stuff. Um, for example, instead of Confederate generals at the State House, there's a big mural of, um, of John Brown uh, looking as... Uh, you know, if you look at the top of my Twitter the, page, you'll see that painting of John Brown. Yes, he's got a rifle and a Bible in the other. Just the way and a cyclone behind him. Uh, yep. Yeah, that's my yes, Facebook banner and my Twitter banner. Yep. Um, yes. He spent some time um, out there during Bleeding Kansas days and then came back east to do Harper's Ferry. Yes. Um, and then he was, of course, executed by the U.S. military. Um, or US uh, no, Army, he was executed me. by the, the state of Virginia. I, I thought it was under... Okay, I, my my history might be wrong on that then. 
Well, his uprising at Harper's Ferry, the people that came to take him down was a detachment of U.S. Marines under the command of an army colonel by the name of Robert E. Lee. Right. So they you know, suppressed the uprising and, and, and captured him. But it was the state of Virginia that tried him for treason and executed him. OK, got it. And just um, as a side note, the Garrison Center, which is named after uh, William Lloyd Garrison, um, Garrison helped fund a plot to try to break him out of jail before they could kill him, but he refused to go. So, so obviously, you agree with me then that uh, Kansas is better than Missouri. On those particular grounds, absolutely. Uh, Missouri was a slave state. Missouri. You know, split along Union Confederate lines between people, but uh, you look at, you know, Quantrill came from Missouri, raided Kansas, raided Lawrence, burned it. Um, Mm -hmm. One of his boys was Jesse James, who later went on to another kind of fame. Yeah, and And, uh, uh, his house is, his house slash museum is up in St. Joe. Jesse James, yeah, I've been there. Uh, St. Joe has the Jesse James house and has uh, the uh, Pony Express Museum, which I went to as a child. Mm-hmm. I actually grew up for a few years yeah, my, uh, right next to Kansas City, um, Parkville. Okay. Um, we moved down yeah, to it, Southern it's, Missouri it's, when I was seven. Okay. It, it's actually just been a um, last couple of years I've been looking into my genealogy and I have a lot of history in, um, in Western Missouri. Uh, for example, my um my i believe my great 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 grandfather fought in the civil war um from you know, on the side of the union from uh st joe missouri um area um and so that's kind of so wild not, he ended up marrying hmm? oh uh, one of, both of my great great grandfathers one one on each side of my family anyway um, fought for the Union, one from West Virginia and one from Missouri. And the family legend is that he lost his leg from the knee down um, in Mississippi, I think maybe at the Battle of Meridian, and got discharged and then had to walk home uh, with one leg and got arrested for desertion on the way home, even though he had half a leg missing and was in jail for like a week uh-huh. before the paperwork was found that, yeah, he had been discharged. Uh <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. I, I, always right assumed, I had always assumed that any ancestors I had fought on the side of the Confederacy. And then when I got into my genealogy, like I said, one great grandfather from West Virginia, Western Virginia then, and one from Missouri, both fought for the Union. So I am not a member of Sons of Confederate Veterans. I, so I do have, I do have um, some ancestors that are buried in a confederate cemetery but i don't think they were actually um part of the confederate army if that makes sense um but uh, i i do know that my 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 grandpa george his brother blueford actually fought on the confederacy and he has a um he has a little tombstone right next to by um, my great great grandfather so um you're fading anyway, in and out again. I, I am? Yes. You were breaking oh, my, up my there for about 10 Tom. seconds. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't have the best reception out in Kansas, unfortunately. <laughs> well, that's strange. I would think that as flat as the place is, that the cell coverage would go for long ways. 
line of sight. I'm a hill. Oh no, no I, I'm in a, I'm in a hilly area, so lots of trees. You don't lots have to name the town, or but are we talking northeastern or southeastern Kansas? Oh, northeast. So maybe Lawrence area, Lenexa, kind of that area. Oh no, I, I live in I live in the the KC Metro. The what metro? Kansas oh, City, the, K- KC the KC Metro. metro. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I'm is sorry. there any other metro? <laughs> well, there's a Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> they actually, the, there was actually a Macy's in Manhattan, Kansas, a long time ago. That that's surprising. I I think it was kind of a publicity thing that you know there was a Macy's in Manhattan that they decided to start a second one and they picked Manhattan, Kansas for it. Well, I mean, uh, my Kansas, ex-wife used to go up to, to Manhattan, Kansas to go to Macy's. I mean, a lot of the small towns in Kansas used to be thriving, and now they're very much dying out, unfortunately. There's lots of lots of ghost towns. Well, that's the way it is in every state. I mean, you have, like, every small town now is either a bedroom community or it's just withering away. If you look here uh, in Florida around the Gainesville area, Archer is 10 miles out of Gainesville. It has become a bedroom community for professionals that work in Gainesville that, that want to be a little bit out of town. But then there's probably 30 other small towns every five miles up and down the little highways that there's nothing left there but an old trailer and maybe a sign. Is Cars changed everything. So, I think you, you're, you're fading back in and out again. Okay. Um... How's that, Tom? Can you hear me better now? That's better. That's better. Okay, cool. Are you like walking around your house trying to find more bars? No, no. I just turned my Wi-Fi back on. Hopefully, it'll last this time. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, Tom, I did want to talk to you about you were uh, you're spreading some lies and blasphemy about me a little bit ago on the call. I noticed. Oh, what so, was that? So, um, just, just to, you know, I, I didn't mind back then, but I, I, I kind of mind when, when you say it now. Um, so I, I didn't really like join that, you know, the, the race against the, the crazy Nazi dude. Right. Um, I, I didn't really join to, to unseat him or save the party or anything like that, really. Um, well, just, but functionally that's what you accomplished for, yes, at least for a few years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you, you could say that. My my big my big goal in that was um, mostly to uh, support Gary Johnson at the time because um, we we didn't really have a good uh, peace candidate, um, and Gary Johnson was probably one of the best. Um, yeah. You know, as I've mentioned to you before, I've you know my my big goal in pretty much everything I've done is to try to have a, a more peaceful, happy world, right? Absolutely, and that's a laudable um, goal. Yeah, and so, so like, you know, Gary Johnson, I know he had plenty of faults. Um, his tax plan was definitely one of them. But, um, you know, he, to, to me at least, versus folks like, say, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, definitely pushed uh, pushed that message forward. Um, but, uh, yeah, unfortunately, his... I think I really liked his um, his 2016 campaign a lot more than his 2020 campaign. No, he uh, didn't run in 2020. I'm sorry, his 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 2012 versus 2016 campaign. My, my apologies. 
See, I wasn't involved in the 2012 campaign at all. I was not active with the party at that time. Um, in 2016, I had problems with Johnson, but my bigger problems were with his running mate. And I think his running mate had a terrible effect on Johnson himself, caused him to back down on some of the war on drugs issues, um, kind of dragged him down with you know talking nice about Hillary Clinton and uh, the anti-gun talk and stuff. Um, I've never had that big of a problem with Gary. I mean, I've had problems with him. I didn't like his tax plan. Um, I thought that if you looked at his history, he grew the debt in New Mexico faster than Obama grew it nationally during the same time period. Uh, well, that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> well, it's all but, fake money uh, anyway, right? <laughs> but overall, I don't think Gary was a bad candidate. He he got us publicity because he was a former governor. Um, a lot of people were upset with his gaffes and stuff, but I just thought he was a fun guy, and I thought he was likable. And yeah. uh, there's a whole lot to be said for a political candidate if they're likable. If a voter looks at him and says, yeah, that's a good guy, and he's, he's on my side, then that's half the battle right there. Before you ever get down to the actual issues is, yeah, I would have a beer with that guy. I bet that if somebody attacked me in a bar, he would be one of them pulling the guy off me. You know that yeah and and that's that's actually how i met gary i was at uh i was at cpac you, to support you pulled the guy off of him in a bar no no i, I was oh, at, okay <laughs> i i wish that'd be a much better story no i was at cpac um to support uh ron paul and uh i met gary johnson there and uh he, he had like a he had a meet and greet with like margaritas and he wasn't drinking obviously but we were um and he was the candidate uh, I most likely have, I most want to have a drink with. So, yeah. Well, there you go. You know. <laughs> well, but, no, um, I mean, I wasn't trying to imply earlier that you jumped into the race solely to save the party from itself with Augustus Invictus, because I, I did really didn't have any way of knowing that one way or the other. Mm -hmm. uh, but, uh, um, like I said, you know, that was the effect of your campaign is we had a really bad guy that was going to be our nominee, whether we liked him or not, unless somebody entered and there was a primary. Oh, I mean, I, I, I get that. It was, it was actually a big moment of growth for me um, because, you know, prior to, you know, dealing with that nonsense, I, you know, I wouldn't have considered myself to be um, anti-racist, so to speak. Right. Um, it, it wasn't my issue. I really didn't care about it. I didn't realize how a, a lot of that, intersected to you know uh to uh, to to oppression and to war right because you have these crazy guys who are you know cra these these crazy like racist nazis and their like mission in life is to have a civil war which is you know a racial like along racial lines to to, to fight for white people or some nonsense like that like seriously that's that's what they're advocating for like clearly that's what they say <laughs> that's augustus and well, I mean, it's it's not just him though. I mean, he's not special. <laughs> this is well, yeah. He's actually he's a very special guy, Paul. <laughs> In certain ways, he's very very special. But, but um, no, this this like this like ethno nationalism is is a big you know is is a big kind of 
it, it, it's more common than I think people think. And it, the, the parallels between that and its, its, its connection to, you know, wanting Rahoa, as they call it, right? A racial holy war is, is just weird and it's crazy. But then they try to play themselves off as being, you know, anti-war because they don't like certain specific wars or certain specific conflicts. Um, yeah. and, and so that's, and so I that's, confess. I was hoping that once that really took root in the Republican Party, which it very much has the last seven, ten years, that that would mean they would go off and leave the Libertarian Party alone. But it didn't happen. Um, I well, it, the I think they largely have, perhaps. Um, I, I think the problem's bigger than um, than like yeah. There, there's like the crazy Mises crowd or whatever Mises pack group that's you know taken over the party now yeah I, I get that and they're trying to attract those types of crazies into the libertarian party I, I, I get that too but um, the real hardcore ones very much are still attracted to the Republican party because they don't see that the libertarian party as as a venue to to push their ideology I mean I, I think right. there's a big there's a big gap between the Mises crowd or the Mises pack and the people who are looking for like racial holy war. Oh <laughs> uh, you know once Well some of them anyway. Well well yeah I mean you, you you clearly you clearly have a lot of your racists in there for sure and it's not something I would ever want to affiliate or associate with. Um but there's there is a large gap. And I think the more serious people who are seriously pushing for this and have a chance of, you know, the, the people who actually have a chance of accomplishing their horrendous, you know, heinous goals, I, I think are legitimately affiliated with the Republican Party. Um, I, I think the Libertarian Party might act as like a staging ground for people to test out their ideas before, you know, moving on to the Republican Party. Um, we, we do see that with a lot of with, with some um various uh, white supremacists who've come up through the ranks. Um, Invictus, for example, has done that. Um, you have other folks, um, uh, Crying Nazi, um, Chris Cantwell, I believe he probably affiliates as like a Republican or whatever now. <laughs> well, he affiliates as prisoner number BR549, so. Oh, he, he's still in there? Supposedly. Um, I still think that he was actually a, a federal agent and that he's actually, you know, knocking back cocktails poolside somewhere and just occasionally does an interview quote from prison, unquote. But that's just a conspiracy theory of mine. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you also had, you know, folks like Richard Spencer. I don't know what he's up to these days or who largely affiliated with the libertarian movement. Um, you know, get out he of, seems uh, to have disappeared, which actually somewhat worries me. You always wonder what people like that are up to. Oh yeah, I, I think I, I think he kind of disappeared because of uh, because of infighting, um, which is often the case with the uh, you know purity spiral type stuff. Um, I, I think the rumor about him was um, I, I think there were questions about his um, sexual orientation or. Um, or, or something like that, that, that made him a pariah. It's hard to keep track. I have of to confess that, that I don't keep close enough track of it outside the libertarian party. 
um, to know what a lot of these guys are up to and where they've been and what they're doing. Oh, no, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, this, this is, this is from years ago. I haven't heard anything about him for a long time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> I think the more serious people are really into the Republican party now. Um, the Republican party has made a huge jump in just a few years where it used to be, they would send out warnings to like not be affiliated with certain groups or not be affiliated with certain things. And now they're yeah. kind of looking the other way. Um, you know, there's QAnon congressmen. <laughs> well, back when David Duke ran for uh, legislature or Congress in uh, Louisiana, mm-hmm. he won the Republican nomination in the primary and the Republican Party denounced him and said, don't vote for this guy. Yes. Now you have guys that are just as fucking wacko as him. Um, maybe not as very specifically racist and anti-Semitic, but they at least dog whistle in that direction. They win a primary and the, uh, you know, the National Republican Senatorial Committee pushes money at them. Yes. Uh, instead of denouncing them and saying that's not us. And there's a point where if you're not saying that's not us, you're saying that's us. I mean, yeah, you're, you're completely right. Um, you're completely right. And so that's, uh, <laughs> that's interesting to say the least. Um, I'm really interested to see what kind of candidates make it through all these primaries though on the GOP side. And, uh, especially with the, um, especially with the, the like the, the pro insurrection folks and, um, in, in members of various, um, you know, conspiracy theory groups like the QAnon and whatnot, um, how, how they do and how they get supported by the party in uh, you know, 2022. Well, one thing I've noticed, and a lot of it's wrapped up in who Trump himself endorses. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, he's endorsing this, these candidates and they're winning primaries. Um, about 80% of the candidates he endorses are candidates that were going to win their primary anyway. And they're not necessarily big time Trumpers. Um, but he endorses them and then he gets credit because they win their primary. Oh, look, Trump endorsed them and they won. Of the ones that are your hardcore January 6th types and QAnon types and stuff, the record's a lot more mixed. A lot, of, a lot of them are losing even if he endorses them. So, you know, we'll see how that goes out. Trump is the gift that keeps on giving, um, mostly for the Democratic Party, in my opinion. Maybe. I, I don't I, – I really disagree with that, though. I mean, um, I – I completely reevaluated, um, you know, how I thought elections were won back when good old uh, George W. won his um, won his reelection race. And, you know, and of course, you, you probably disagree with me on this. I really think he won because he was pushing for a constitutional amendment um, to ban uh, same sex marriage. He that very well may have um, been and the that case. Got, and, and that increased the turnout. And so he wasn't trying to get the median voter. He was trying to increase turnout. And that's the, that's the gift of Trump. He doesn't win the median voter. He alienates the median voter and he discourages his opponents. But I think he drives Democratic turnout too. And here's the thing. We have three elections now to work with on Trump. In 2016, the election was a referendum on Hillary Clinton. Trump's selling point was that he was not Hillary Clinton, and he won. 2018 and 2020 were referendums on Trump, and he got his ass whipped both times. 
if he makes it, if he's able to make the election a referendum on himself, which he's working hard to do, and the Democrats are working hard to help him do, um, I think that he tends to lose. So the Democrats did get more turnout in 2020 than like any other election, but Trump also got more turnout in 2020 than any other election. I, I just just because he lost, I don't think means this. Yes, he lost, but he got more people than ever to vote for him. And I think that is really significant and important here. Um, I think you're right. And that is a fair point. Because uh, if you know here in 2022 and 2024, if people if Democrats aren't energized, well, Trump is really good at energizing his people. He's also good at discouraging people. Um, like if it weren't for the recent Dobbs decision, I wouldn't think that the Democrats would have any chance of anything here in, in the you know 2022 election. But even then, there's questions of will this energize the Republicans more? So, um, I well, I, one of the things there it, it will the Dobbs will drive Democratic turnout, and a lot of what you're talking about are your sort of marginal elections where it's not a safe seat. Wisconsin is a good example. Ron Johnson, the Republican, was already in trouble. It was already very iffy whether he could get reelected this November. With the Dobbs ruling and him having a pro-choice Democratic opponent and pro-choice polling well in Wisconsin, I think Ron Johnson is done. Really? I think Wisconsin goes Democrat. I've already predicted that the question is not whether the Republicans take control of the Senate. They're not going to. The, the question is whether the Democrats maintain their 50 seats or gain one or two. Okay. Did you think that before the Dobbs decision? Before the Dobbs decision, I had it at better than even that the Repub- the Democrats would hold their 50 seats. Uh, after Dobbs and after J.D. Vance got nominated in Ohio and with Eric Greitens possibly getting nominated in Missouri, um, I don't think Ohio or Missouri are going to go Democratic, but the Republicans are going to have to pour a lot more money into those states to, to keep them. And that's money that they won't be able to pour into Arizona to beat Mark Kelly or into uh, Pennsylvania to get Oz elected over uh, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor. Um, it's not Pfeffer. I can't remember his last name. Yeah, the, the bald the, the, fat guy that looks like me. Yeah, he's, um, he's, he's, a, he's a crazy guy. He's great. Crazy um, guy, just like you now. <laughs> yeah, I think that Pennsylvania goes Democratic. It was Republican. Mm-hmm. I think that Arizona remains Democratic. I think Nevada probably remains Democratic, and then Georgia may just be Republican enough that uh, Herschel Walker does win. Um, But it's not as obvious now as it was before Dobbs, because Ohio and Missouri, they were strong Republican. Now they are very weak, lean Republican. And if Greitens gets nominated in Missouri, that'll be a toss-up. What do you think uh, of Abrams since you mentioned uh, since you mentioned Georgia? I don't think that she's a strong candidate. Um, but uh, she's running for governor again, right? Yeah, she's running for governor again. Um, I could see her winning. I don't think she's the strongest candidate. I think that the more 
she's out there and the more she's looked at, the less uh, less she is liked. But it's Warnock versus Walker for Senate. And before Dobbs, I would have said Walker was just going to win in a walkover. He has Trump's endorsement. He's a Republican. He's a football player. Um, but now he's had a few stumbles of his own. Like it, it keeps getting, he's so pro family, but it keeps finding out, people keep finding out he has kids that he doesn't publicly admit to with women he's not married to. Um, and I think Dobbs might increase Democratic turnout by two, three, four percent, and that might be enough. You, you, you really think that his, uh, his, his pro family is gonna, is gonna bite him? Uh, look, look at, uh, like Trump, for example, and his uh, <laughs> pro family takes. Well, Trump was an inflection point on that, in that before that, if you were a, quote, pro-family Republican candidate and people found out that you, um, you know, had four girlfriends and you'd paid for their abortions or whatever, um, you were probably in trouble. When right. it came to Trump, there was nothing he could do that would change any voter's mind about him. No matter how evangelical Christian they were. Oh, you know, well, he's been accused of rape. Oh, well, he grabs him by the pussy. Oh, he paid off a porn star. And it didn't change their minds at all. And, and that was kind of a tipping point to me that um, back in the early 2000s, you had Karl Rove running what he called you know, your family values campaigns. Right. And Trump changed that to where, yeah, we were just kidding about all that. We're still going to vote for the Republicans. No matter, you know, how anti what we are, they happen to be. They're the Republicans and we're not voting for the Democrats. Uh, so, yeah, that you may be right. The Trump effect may have insulated Walker from that. But I think it may be hurt him a little bit. Um, on paper, before he actually started opening his mouth and before people started looking at him, he was a perfect candidate. It's Georgia. He's a Republican. He's African-American. He was a football star. And the popular president in our state has endorsed him. It was like, how can this guy lose? But now things seem to be falling to pieces on him to a degree. And Dobbs might drive the turnout on the Democratic side enough to make the difference. Hmm. Oh, but that's so just I, my I, opinion. I, so to, to kind of... Uh kind of uh, shift things on you a little. Um, you've been watching the uh, the the January 6th committee meeting, right? Uh, no, I watched the first one or two. I did not watch the one last night. Okay, um, okay. I had to rely on summaries. Uh, and so my I, attitude toward it, I mean, obviously they brought out some stuff mm -hmm. that I didn't know, some specific facts, but the overall story they're telling, I already agreed with. Do you think it will have any impact? I I know that it will have an impact. I don't know what the impact will be. I'm expecting that the committee will make a criminal referral on Trump and possibly some others, or maybe just or possibly some others, to the Department of Justice, and that Garland will then be moved to indict somebody or some people, maybe Trump. How that will play out and you know, which turnout does it drive this November? Does it drive Republican turnout because now they're all martyrs or does it drive Democratic turnout by keeping the outrage over January 6th up? I don't know. The big question mark I was reading about this morning is that Republicans are worried that Trump's going to go ahead and announce for 2024 
this fall before the election <laughs> and that that will drive Democratic turnout. And I really haven't figured out where all it's going. And you've raised some questions on this call that make me reconsider my previous opinions. I'm going to have to start cracking some numbers and thinking about all this. I mean, I I was I used to be really in the oh Trump can't win anything kind of boat, right? Um, and I just think it's really <laughs> I, I think it's a really poor <laughs> idea to underestimate the um, you know, the cult of personality and the right wing populism that he really brings about, um, and he really gets turnout. He, he is the most effective Republican like ever, as far as turnout goes, uh, at least as far as the raw numbers. Yeah. And that was one of the things, um, when I was reading about Republicans being worried that he would drive democratic turnout by announcing, um, yes. I'm thinking that if he's going to run, he has to announce soon. Because a certain number of Republicans, it's a phenomenon that's been measured in polling, a certain mm -hmm. number of Republicans are just saying, okay, I'm tired of the drama, and maybe Ron DeSantis, you know, would be Trump without quite as much controversy. And so Trump's numbers are coming down some among Republicans for 2024. So if he's going to do it, he needs to announce soon so that he closes out some of these people that could compete with him. I think I think Trump I think Trump announcing and campaigning in the um, you know in the at risk or the borderline um, Republican districts I, I think that is probably the biggest threat to the Democrats right now to be honest um, but that's um, that might be true especially at the House level and I have not analyzed the House races to mm -hmm. see what I think will happen I think at the Senate level the only state where he might put somebody over the top is Georgia. I don't think that he can change the outcome in Pennsylvania. Um, I don't think his candidate, I can't remember the candidate's name in Arizona, will even win the Republican primary. Um, the Republican likely nominee in Nevada is not a Trump type. He, his last name is Laxalt, and he, I believe he's the son of longtime Senator Paul Laxalt, um, you know, very mainstream button down Republican. Uh, I think this guy's name is Adam Laxalt. Um, so I don't think that Trump would change the outcome in Nevada. For one thing, he wouldn't bother to go there. He goes and campaigns for the ones who are promoting him. Yeah. Now, at the House level, you may very well be right. If there's a district where it's close and it's a Trump candidate running and Trump shows up to promote them, that will bring out the Republican base and, and keep that seat Republican or make it Republican. But uh, um, I'm not sure he can have much effect at the, the uh, level of governor or senator. Hmm. Hey, um, this room has gone on for just over an hour now. It started out as a thanks for asking, you know, ask me anything thread and turned out into what I consider a nice, rewarding conversation with Paul Stanton. Uh, about just politics in general. I had a great deal of fun. Now I have to go see if this recorded well on call-in and put it up as a podcast. But I want to thank everybody who showed up to listen. It looks like we have five listeners, six listeners. 
um, which isn't bad for a soft launch of a new show, in my opinion, especially if it's just me hosting it. Um, but I'd like to thank Joel and Paul for coming on the air and talking and all of you for listening. And I'm going to end this room. You all have a great week and we'll probably do this again in early July.